reading today out of the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. I'm reading from the ESV. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into the heavens as he went, behold, Two men stood by them in white robes, and he said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, and Peter and John and James and Andrew Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. This is the word of the Lord. I, I suppose it's only appropriate for a missionary returning from the field in his first sermon back to speak on missions. It's not a go-ye-into-all-the-world sermon, but it is to a degree, of course, as you can read from the text, to a degree, a sermon on missions. But I hope, I hope it's much bigger and broader than that. The text we're looking at this morning, as you see, is the first 14 verses of the book of Acts. And I hope that as we consider it together that God, through His Holy Spirit, We'll use it to transform and encourage us. So please, let me mention mention some of the things that that you may already know about the background of the book, its author, the audience, and some of the themes before we look more closely at those verses in the first chapter. And, And if I tell you things you already know and I'm belaboring a point, please forgive me. Actually, I I preach a sermon similar to this, not exactly like this. Similar to this, uh, to the folks in Germany, and all of this information is brand new. So, um, allow us to belabor a little bit together. As you know, the book of Acts is really the second part of a two-book series. Both parts are written by a medical doctor and a researcher and historian by the name of Luke. The first part, or book, was called The Gospel According to Luke. And he refers to it here in the first verse. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Well, 
He then tells Theophilus in the next several paragraphs about what happened the day that Jesus was taken up. And then in the next 23 to 24 chapters, he tells him, talking to Theophilus, what happened in those following days and years, the coming of the world, I'm sorry, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the, the dangers, the adventures and challenges of sharing a message with a world that quite honestly really wasn't all that interested in hearing it. And how God used the church to equip and empower His people for the sake of Christ. Until He ends the book with Paul sitting in a Roman prison, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with boldness and without hindrance. Of course, in this song we just sang, it was basically, it was one of the verses is, Lord, we pray for courage and that we wouldn't be uh, slothful. It's exactly the same prayer that Paul prayed. He kept asking the churches, please pray for me that I would have courage, because Paul was often afraid. So if you're feeling afraid, you're in good company. The Apostle Paul was too. The book begins with Jesus explaining the kingdom of God, and it ends with Paul, and by extension, us, completing the work that Christ did not. We say that Christ, well, how is it possible that Christ didn't complete His work? Well, Christ completed the work of justification, completed the work on the cross, but then He left the rest of the work to us. We were to go and tell the world, tell our neighbors and tell our friends, tell the lost about the good news of Jesus Christ. We're to proclaim the truth and the glory of the kingdom of God. He's writing to this gentleman named Theophilus, who is likely a patron or supporter of Luke. But the sense that we get about Theophilus is that he's actually also a bit of a skeptic. In many ways, he seems very similar to the modern reader. Theophilus has heard some rumblings of activity and talk about this man called Jesus, and he wants, he wants some more information. But he doesn't simply want some more information as though he said, she, she said, wow, he said, she said, that wouldn't be enough. He'd heard some absolutely outlandish stories about a man rising from the dead. They're not just hard. They're absolutely impossible to believe. I mean, come on. Nobody rises from the dead. And just because this Theophilus fellow lived at the first century doesn't make him an idiot. Oftentimes we think, ah, you know, those old-time people, they'll believe anything. But we modern people are more, you know, good thinkers. We don't believe in dead people rising to life. Well, neither did Theophilus, neither did the Sadducees, neither did whole groups of people. He was a middle-class, educated, thoughtful man. And so he enlists a medical doctor, a scientist named Luke, to investigate and to travel with the apostles, and specifically, uh, mostly Paul, and report back to him what has happened and what is happening. And so Luke transitions from his gospel according to Luke to the book of Acts with the account of Christ's ascension. But he gives this account not as a person telling a bizarre story, but as a historian referring to many proofs and many witnesses over a long period of time. There's a, an excellent book out, by the way, called uh, by the name of Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, the Gospels as Eyewitness Testimony by a gentleman by the name of Richard Balkman, Balkum. Um, it's, 
it's basically a defense of the Gospels as eyewitness testimony, which uh, many liberal modern uh, critics argue are just basically uh, stories and tales for people to believe, and he's arguing that historically that's never been the case. So it's an excellent, if uh, I commend it to you. Much of the book of Acts seems to be not only information pulled from various witnesses, but he himself was also there, cataloging the events in order to tell Theophilus and us that belief and trust in the risen Christ who came to earth to suffer and to die and to rise again is not wishful thinking, but belief in historical, verifiable events. And although Luke's primary focus seems to be evangelism, it's actually it's actually the kingdom. But as he explains to Theophilus all that he's seen as heard, heard, Luke shows that the power for the advancement of the gospel, the advancement of the gospel itself is the Holy Spirit. And that the gospel message, the kingdom message, is advanced through the work of evangelists, apostles, and the local church. And he shows how the gospel effectively engages with various cultures, religions, and worldviews, and circumstances in which the gospel message is not acceptable in the public square, if that sounds at all familiar. In many ways, Luke is writing for an audience that is precisely like our own. So as we examine the text this morning, I want to look at three terms that Luke uses, terms that are foundational to the message that he wants to communicate throughout the book of Acts. Those terms are kingdom, witness, and ascension. We'll talk about why these terms are important, that is, why we care, or should care, and what result that should have for us today. So, the three terms, kingdom, witness, and ascension. He presented himself live to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Jesus decided that while proving his resurrection over the course of 40 days to his disciples and others, that the most important topic of conversation, the theme that they really needed, the theme that really needed to be clear in their heads, the subject that really needed focus was not explaining what does heaven look like, or how do you decipher the end-time prophecies and how does that fit with the newspaper? Or anything else. His focus was the kingdom of God. Interestingly enough, it was also the disciples' constant point of interest. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, their mother, wanted to know who was going to sit in the place of power and prominence in the kingdom of God in Matthew 20. In Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 3, John Baptist is quoted, Repent, because the kingdom is at hand. Jesus repeated that phrase one chapter later. He said, We pray in the Lord's Prayer, Your kingdom come. He tells the Pharisees that the kingdom of God is in their midst. What did he mean? Well, primarily, primarily he meant that all of the embodiment of all authority and power and rule and glory of God was found in Christ. Let's try this again. What did Christ mean when he said the kingdom? He meant that all the embodiment of all authority and power and rule and glory of God is found in Christ. He was the king 
and the king was among them. When Christ entered into creation and John the Baptist said, the kingdom is at hand, he could have easily said, the king is at hand. But that would have missed the point a bit. You see, with the coming of a kingdom, there's a new government. There's a new culture. And yes, there's a new king. There are decisions that have to be made. Will you submit yourself to the authority of that king and be a part of the kingdom, or will you rebel? When John the Baptist says, the kingdom is at hand, therefore repent, he's saying, the king who rules over this jurisdiction, he's here. Now, right now, is the time to stop serving other kings. Turn to him, bow before him, and serve only him. So when the disciples asked Jesus in verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Notice Jesus' answer. It wasn't no. It wasn't yes. It was, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But he doesn't stop there. He continues with but. Now, not answering the question is, you know, He's answering something different. He continues, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth. His answer was, by the way, in response to their question, was yes, now is the time, but not in the way you think. It won't be an earthly, geographically, and culturally bound kingdom. The kingdom of Israel, God's chosen people, will be restored and reconstituted by these Jewish disciples proclaiming the kingdom to Jews and Gentiles alike. The restored Israel, the new Israel, the promised Israel, those that are true sons of Abraham by faith, will contain people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The restoration of Israel will involve the apostles bearing witness to Christ, not only in Israel, but also to the ends of the earth. And this message of the kingdom would go out through the power of the Holy Spirit, who was soon to be poured out upon them. The ruler of the kingdom of God is the one king over all heaven and all of earth. There is no part of heaven or earth over which God's authority and control do not extend. He is the one king over the one kingdom. His Old Testament and New Testament chosen people, Israel and the church, it's all one kingdom. What? Why should we care? Why should we care what Christ taught the disciples about the kingdom? Because Christ is coming back. And when he comes back, he will make his kingdom visible and complete. And when he comes back, we will know, we will continue to know better that the kingdom is now, as you may have heard many times, the kingdom is now but not yet. His kingdom is here and now and advancing, but it is not yet fully visible. The chance to seek him while he may be found is now. The message is to go out now. Luke tells Theophilus and us, the proof is irrefutable. Christ, by the Holy Spirit, is among us. 
The call to repentance and to abandon your self-worship and to submit to Christ and His rule is a limited time offer. In response to your cosmic rebellion against the lordship and rulership of the creator and king of the universe, you're being, you're being offered amnesty of the highest order. It is a call to repentance. Often, when we think of repentance, it's a depressing thought. By the way, if we use that word repentance in Bavaria, the German word for it, everyone nods and says, I know exactly what that word means. That means you go to the priest and you do, and you do, the, things you tell him what, and you do the things he tells you to do, and that's, that's repentance. And so we actually, have to, we actually cannot use the German word for repentance because it's loaded. We have to use literally the word for turning from or turning around. So, now, so with us, we know this term means a turning around in English, but we, but we, we don't say, now's the time for turning around. Now's the time for repentance, which means turn around. But it's not a depressing thought. The call for repentance is a message of joy. It's a message of joy because it means that there's still, even now, a chance to repent. The judgment that's to come by the returning king is not yet. Mercy and grace can still be yours. What greater joy is that? But the skeptics say, ah, there's no resurrection. Jesus lives, sure, but resurrection from the dead, well, that's just, that's just silliness. The problem is, you see, that there were so many witnesses over such a long time. The physical evidence for Luke and Theophilus and the hundreds of others at the time was overwhelming, which takes us to witnesses, moving from kingdom to witnesses. So I was reading a, sometime back a parenting blog, and I don't know why, but there I was, probably a Facebook link. I got lost. But anyway, I was reading his parenting blog, and I came across an entry by a person who was relaying a personal experience. And apparently, this author had a friend who, when nobody was around, accidentally hit somebody in a parking lot, somebody's car. Now, this friend of the writer wanted to get out of being blamed for the accident, although they'd clearly done it. So they asked their friend, they asked the blogger, if you can keep up with who I'm talking about here, the, the, the guilty person asked the blogger, who was clearly not there, to be a witness and say that she was with her friend and she could verify that her friend absolutely had not hit the car. So the blogger sent out into the, the sphere, what should I do? Well, when people respond to anything on the internet, they usually respond with a great deal more emotion than anyone would do face-to-face. Uh, but they, they, and so people write in, they were cursing, and they, were, they had all, all kinds of bad things to say about the friend. And, um, and so once you weeded through the bad language and the unchecked emotions and the vitriol, it seemed the general consensus was, you can't be a witness to something you haven't seen or heard or experienced. So, as much as maybe you'd like to, by definition, you can't be a witness. You can be a messenger, but you can't be a witness. When Jesus turned to his disciples and said, you shall be my witnesses, he was saying, we have just spent 
about the last three years together, and you have heard what I said, you've seen what I've done, and we've walked together, we've shared life together, we've laughed and we've cried together, you saw me suffer, you saw me die, and now you've seen me alive. So when I send you out into the world, I'm not sending you out to tell the world, I'm sorry, I am sending you out to the world to tell you, to tell them what you have seen and heard and experienced. But Jesus knew that people won't always believe the witnesses, even the Pharisees who study the scriptures and who saw Jesus face to face didn't believe. But you see, their refusal to believe in Christ was not an intellectual problem. It was a moral problem. Jesus said to them in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The scriptures inspired by, inspired by the Spirit of God are witness about Christ. The disciples who saw and heard and experienced Christ are also sent out to be his witnesses. Of course, by the way, the, the word apostle means sent out one, right? Because they, and all the, the first apostles had all seen Jesus face to face, except for, of course, Paul on the road to Damascus. But how, when, and where were they told to go as witnesses? Well, how? By the power of the Holy Spirit. They were never intended to go out by force of personality or internal emotional reserves to be witnesses to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Only by the power of the Holy Spirit. If they go out on personal reserves, that well soon becomes empty and they die. Can't do it. It's too lonely out there. There's no, there's, you're all by yourself. And if the Holy Spirit's not with you, you can't do it. Here, here in the States, you can't do it without the power of the Holy Spirit. You get too discouraged. You begin, you begin to believe it's all on you. And, and the labor becomes all about you. But you get sent out. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit. When? After the Holy Spirit had come upon them, only after the Spirit was poured out upon them in baptism were they to go out. Where were they to go? They were to go to their immediate neighbors in Jerusalem, in Colombia, in Irmo. They were to go to their fellow countrymen in Judea, around the country. They were to go to nearby lands and countries, even those they didn't like or trust. And most everybody around Israel, they didn't like them or trust them. So go. To those people you don't like or trust. Sometimes they're your neighbors, by the way. And they would go to faraway lands to be witnesses to what they had seen and heard. Everyone needs to hear the message. The good king is here. The glorious king is coming again. Repent. The lamb who died for the sins of his people is on the throne. The kingdom is at hand. The book of Acts follows the structure and tells us of the witnesses as they went out. And they were supported and encouraged through the money, prayer, supplies, letters, and visits of members of local churches. And these local churches that were planted by the witnesses grew. And they were the means by which the Holy Spirit caused His people to mature. He gave them gifts to serve Christ and one another in these local churches. He gave them the power to learn, understand, and obey truth here in the local church. Within the local church, future teachers, counselors, pastors, and missionaries were developed, trained, and commissioned. 
Within the local church, people gathered together in big and small groups to pray and to pray and to pray. To encourage one another, not simply for each other's weight loss goals, new outfits, but to encourage one another in their love for Christ and in the pursuit of repentance unto life and to good works. The local church is a microcosm of the worldwide universal church. It is not, has never been, intended to be a social club in which we find friends with common interests in sports, music, philosophy, and movies. It is the model given to us by Christ by which we are equipped, strengthened, and encouraged by those obediently and joyfully using their God-given gifts to serve, admonish, instruct, and encourage. It is the community of believers in which we help to equip, admonish, strengthen, and encourage other believers to love and serve Christ and others. And it is the God-ordained structure from and through which we worship God, serve one another, and evangelize the world. Why do we care about the witnesses? Because they actually saw and heard and experienced Christ. For them, it wasn't an abstraction. It was a real relationship. They're, talk, they're just talking about what they know to be true. Our faith is based on historical, verifiable facts. It's based on a real person. And when we go to share the gospel with others and when we go to proclaim the kingdom is at hand, it's because we're also witnesses to God's power and reality in our lives. Because you cannot be a witness to what you've never seen or heard or experienced. Are you a witness? Can you be a witness? Have you experienced for yourself what Christ has done for you. Well, that takes us from kingdom and witness to the ascension. Why, why is the ascension so critical? Well, i got three questions about the ascension. Very short, I promise. Why did Jesus go up? I mean, up. Why did Jesus go up? And... What was the result of his going up? First question, why did Jesus go up? I mean, why not sideways? Why not simply disappear? Well, first of all, Jesus was not simply going up to heaven. Throughout the Bible, the picture of the relationship between God and his creation has always been one of ascent and descent. Jacob's vision of the angels ascending and descending. Christ descended from heaven so that he might ascend to the Father. Christ was lifted up or ascended on the cross. And as he descend, descended into death so that he might ascend, taking his people with him. And so Christ has descended to earth to suffer so that he might be lifted up. And every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In the ascension, Christ wasn't merely going to heaven. He was also ascending to the throne. See, it wasn't simply a geographical movement. It was a positional one. From suffering, suffering servant to ruling king. 
Why did Jesus go up? Why did he have to leave it all? Jesus had made that clear. He had told his disciples that he would, he would have to leave them. I must go. I will send the comforter. Through, I, through the Holy Spirit, will never leave you or abandon you. If I do not go, I cannot send the comforter. He must go up in order for the restoration of Israel to take place. He must go up so that the restoration and reconstitution of God's chosen people to include the Gentiles can take place. The restoration of Israel that the disciples are asking about will involve their bearing witness to Christ, not only in Israel, but to the ends of the earth. And God's people, His true Israel, will finally be that blessing to the nations, which was promised in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. He went up so that he could send the promised Holy Spirit. So then what was the result of his ascension? Well, in part we might say, well, the Holy Spirit came. Done. Well, but there's more to it than that. The Apostle Paul tells us in chapter 4 of Ephesians, a chapter, by the way, that's dedicated to the role of believers in the body of the church, both local and worldwide, that when Christ ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. The picture there is, of course, is a victorious king who has defeated a great enemy. And the, the enemy is forced to walk down this great boulevard in the center of the city as cheering and jeering throng shouts praise to the king and boos to the defeated army. But there's something different in this verse than what's expected from the normal culture. When a victorious king returns to hear the adoring cries of his people, he expects not only music and cheering and parties and dancing, he also expects gifts, lots of them. But when Christ ascends to the throne as a victorious king, what does he do? He gives gifts to men according to his riches. In other words, his victory, his ascension, results in our receiving wonderful riches and gifts. Gifts which result in the building up of the body and the maturation of the saints that is, the maturation of all who belong to him. He went up to take his place on the throne. He went up so that he could send the Holy Spirit. And he went up so he could lavish us with gifts. If you're one of his, then he has already poured his Holy Spirit on you. If you're one of his, he has lavished you with gifts. If you're one of His, then you have all you need in Christ to serve Him and to serve one another in the body of Christ. The kingdom of God is not simply a physical kingdom. It's much, much bigger than that. Containing Gentiles and Jews, men and women from all over the world, it is now, but not yet. It is here now, but we only experience it and see it in part. But when Christ the King comes again, His kingdom and the, the restoration of Israel will be complete, and we are to be witnesses about the true witness Himself. But we can only be a witness about what we've seen and heard and experienced. If you're not one of His children, you can't be a witness. You've never experienced the grace that could be yours in Christ, and you've never met Him face-to-face, -face. and you've never experienced the full benefit of His ascension. Will you submit to the King 
willingly and joyfully? Or will you reject the proofs and the witnesses? Some say that faith is believing in someone or something in spite of the evidence. Well, that's not what the Bible means by faith. Biblical faith is believing in someone or something because of the evidence. Will you examine it and believe? Or will you reject Christ and the claims of the gospel in spite of the evidence? Some say you need faith in Jesus and the resurrection to make you feel better about life. Or if you need an emotional crutch, then go for it. Who cares if it's really true? Well, if that helps you, then that's great, say people. But you see, that wasn't Theophilus's view. He wanted the truth. He wanted to eyewitness scientific testimony, and if it's true, it changes everything. If it's not, then you and I right here are wasting our time. The Apostle Paul agreed. He says, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then we're most to be pitied. Neither Paul nor Theophilus wanted to base their lives on a fairy tale. Theophilus was very modern. He wanted verifiable evidence, and so Luke gave it to him. If you are a child of God, then you are a witness, whether you think of yourself that way or not. You're a witness to the world of hope and salvation and peace and forgiveness that's found only in Christ. He's given you what you need to love the lost around you and to love those who are different from you, to love those with opposing political views, religious backgrounds and countries of origin, also known as refugees. By the way, in Bavaria, we had 800,000 refugees pour into our country in 2016. 800,000. The Christians circling their wagons, desperate to hide from the changes that might be, the cultural changes that might be inflicted upon them. And they did not see that 800,000 people, image bearers of God, whom they could never reach while they lived in their homeland, have come to them to hear the gospel. Trying to give them a bigger vision than just Bavaria, but God's kingdom. This is the call, isn't it? It's not the time to circle the wagons in fear. It's a time to engage. We are witnesses to and have a message of hope. Keep your eyes on the King. Be filled with wonder to the praise and the eternal glory and honor of our Savior who has ascended the throne. Amen.